0: Contending for the faith, one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Walking through Revelation verse by verse, today we continue looking at the letters to the seven churches, in particular the letter to the church in Pergamum. Proper hermeneutics requires us to look at the letters recipients and what they were going through at the time it was penned. We encourage you to download the PDF handout attached to this message on Sermon Audio. Here is Pastor Alex Kataroja.
1: Okay, we will continue our study in the book of Revelation. We are going through the letters to the seven churches. We've completed the first two letters, and we are now at the third letter, and that is the to the believers and the angel over the church in Pergamum. Now the title of our message today is Where Satan Dwells. Pretty provocative, don't you think? I didn't make that up. That's the theme. That was the reality for the believers in Pergamum at this time. Jesus points out and acknowledges that Pergamum was a place where Satan dwells. And as we are going through our studies. You know, we've gone through the Daniel series. We've gone through now the first chapter, and now we're into chapter two. What we've been doing this whole time, and we're not going to abandon it, is we're trying to understand the scripture in its right context. A lot of times we might take what is written out of context. And I think that happens time and time again. But as we've been exercising the disciplines that we've laid out before us, what I'm finding and what I hope that you're finding too is there is a way to understand the Bible. It is by using it with itself and then understanding it in its context. Um, Let me kind of use an example before we kind of get into the introduction here. How many of us have done any snooping? You're like, oh, you guys don't want to admit that, would you, huh? Okay, let's say, let's just say, hypothetically, you found a letter, and it was written from Adam, and it was written to Eve. When you read that letter, and say you're like, oh, wow, what's this about? Would you put yourself in that letter? No, because it was from Adam to Eve, right? But what's happening is, and it's a struggle for us, I think, as Christians and believers, is, okay, well, the Bible is for us because we're a believer of Jesus Christ. So the tendency is if there was an author and there was an audience, we try to put ourselves in it. Don't do that. And if you don't do that, I'm telling you, it's not actually that complicated. So like, for example, we're studying the seven letters to the seven churches. I'll tell you, I was intimidated because there's a lot of heavy things being said and a lot of things that just I, I don't understand. Of course you wouldn't because it wasn't written to you. So a lot of the prep time, at least for myself, is going into the historical backgrounds because in order to understand the Bible, you need to understand who is the author, who is the audience, what was being communicated, and what, were, what, was, the, what was the cultural setting and background? What were they in? I'll say this. So, right now, like for example, when we start to read this letter to Pergamum, this is going to be like, whoa, what the, you know, this is going to be foreign to us. But guess what? If it's the believers in Pergamum, you think it's going to be foreign to them? No. They know exactly what is being talked about. So, all that is to say, when we're studying the Bible, study it in that context. Like, study it in the historical context. Just let it flow. And what we find is, it it is at the end of it, it's God's redemptive will and plan that's revealed over the different epochs of time, over the millennia. But over time, God is progressively revealing his will, you know, through the writings of the prophets, and that's being collected, and that's where the Jews come in as being custodians of the Old Testament. And then at the coming of Christ and the apostles, then they added to the scripture from the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible was a collection of writings over these different epochs of time, and as a believer, we should understand it in that setting. And at least for me, now that I've really had to unlearn a lot of bad disciplines and a lot of bad maybe, I don't want to call it like surface stuff, I'm like, no, no, like you know, we can kind of read this and just kind of move on kind of deal and, like, you know, kind of skate the surface and, like, really resisting it. I'm finding that when we exercise these disciplines, the Bible is starting to really open up. And, and that's the goal is, like, well, wow, I didn't see it that way because, you know, I was, you know, maybe, you know, off, off kilter there. So what we're going to find when we study this letter, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, the historical backgrounds, what was going on, put some imageries to it, and then the words of our Lord will ring loud and clear. And that being said, yes, we are to understand the Bible in its historical context and its setting, but then if there is a truth that transcends that time, that applies through all time. So for example, if the gospel is, okay, if we confess our sins, we agree with the scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what God says, because John says, if any one of you says that you have no sin, he is a liar, because the testimony of God says every human being is sin, has sin, of course, less Jesus Christ. But, you know, if we confess our sins and we agree that, you know, Jesus died for our sins, and there, by faith in him, we are imputed righteousness. We are granted eternal life and forgiveness of our sins. Well, that truth is not just limited to the, to, the, to the audience. That truth extends to all believers in all time. So for us, we just need to understand it in its settings first, and then what truth applied to them applies across. Does that make sense? So hopefully now, as we kind of get our, our minds ready to study this letter where Satan dwells, Again, that's provocative, but when we get to learn more about Pergamum, you're like, okay, at least I have an idea on why this was descriptive of this city and town. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get our introduction going. Always good to be reminded of the setting of these letters to the seven churches. Here on this map, once again, you can see there on the red dots, it's on... The west coast of what was then Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And you'll see Pergamum out of the seven churches is at least uh, the most north of them. And you'll see there's Patmos there off the coast. And that's where John got this vision. And what we'll do is, we're going to do this for all seven churches. We're going to do this throughout the Bible. What does the scripture tell us about Pergamum? And then what does history tell us about Pergamum? then we're going to exposit the text because now we saw what scripture had to say. We saw what history, you know, try to get an idea of what history has to say. And then when we open up the text, hopefully it starts to make sense. We're trying to be Pergamum believers here is another way to say it. How would they hear it? And I know that sounds probably, cra- you know, it, it's, it's silly, but it's also crazy. You're like, wait a minute. Wait, when you read the Bible, you have to read it understanding that the recipients of this, understanding what they were going through and what was surrounding them? Yes. Like I said, going back to the letter, if you found a letter from Adam to Eve and you would read it, it's between Adam and Eve. When we read like Paul's epistles to Timothy, it's between Paul and Timothy. Now don't put yourself in there, but if he talks about, well, if you're, you know, if someone wants to be a leader, well, that's great. We'll make sure that he has these qualifications. Well, that doesn't, is just limited to Timothy. That's Transcends Timothy for all future leaders, but still it's a conversation between Paul and Timothy. So in this, it's between Jesus and the believers in Pergamum. And I'm telling you, when you do that, it becomes less intimidating. Okay, what did he have to say about this? Remember, he was the one that John saw in his vision with a, with a white robe, going to his feet and a golden sash, and he was descriptive, John in his vision, and he saw him standing in the middle of the lampstands. Seven lampstands. And he is walking among them. And the interpretation of the vision is given. Those lampstands that John saw in his vision represented these seven churches. You're like, wait, but does that mean the seven churches for all time? Don't go there yet. Just, Just hold your horses. The seven churches in the first century. And Jesus was walking among them. And he assessed them. And now he has... Is assessment done. What was the assessment to the believers in Pergamum? That's what we're going to do. But before we do that, we're going to look at what else scripture has to tell us, and then what history has to tell us, and then hopefully it all comes together. So what does scripture tell us about Pergamum? So out of the seven letters to the seven churches, there are four churches that are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only mentioned here in the book of Revelation, and that would be Smyrna, which we covered last time, Pergamum, which we covered, are covering right now, and then Sardis and Philadelphia. Those are the four churches. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, only in Revelation. Um, but Ephesus, we know that there's an epistle from Paul to the church in Ephesus. Now, there isn't an epistle to Thyatira directly or Laodicea, but nonetheless, they are, there were believers that were mentioned being from those cities and towns, so they were at least mentioned in other parts of the New Testament. But all seven churches that we saw on the map are in ancient Asia Minor. So if you're not men- if you're not mentioned in scripture or, um, elsewhere, all we can do is look for clues. And we don't this one we can kind of really get through this pretty quickly because we covered Smyrna last week, which wasn't mentioned. So there's really four possibilities. You know, how was the believers or how was the church? in pergamum established how are there believers there well there's you know, i think these four viable options it could have been from the preaching of the apostle peter you know um, that pentecost that year uh, when jesus uh, died rose and ascended you know whether it's through the great sermon or even any of the acts of the apostles that followed um They could have been established by the preaching of the Apostle Paul. He had several missionary journeys, and there was one in particular where he stayed over two years in Ephesus, and Ephesus is in the same province as Pergamum, or they could have just been scattered there and settled there due to the persecution, and we've covered that quite a bit. Um, there was a great persecution against the church under Nero, and that continued to even the writing of this letter in Dimit- under Domitian. And then lastly, the apostle John. He could have been the reason why there was a church in Pergamum, because Peter and John tag team quite a bit in Acts. So those are really kind of the four options, because Scripture doesn't necessarily tell us that we, you know, we can't really be dogmatic about that, but I think those are four options you know, good possibilities on how they started in Pergamum to begin with. Um, so that's really all the scripture I have to see on that. But now let's look at history, a brief look in history concerning Pergamum. Now, what's pretty cool about Pergamum, and I've watched now a lot of videos, saw a lot of pictures, man, it, it was on a high uh, Acropolis. It's high and it had great views, and we'll see a little bit about it. Um, but it overlooks the modern town of Bergama, which is in the province of Izmir, Turkey, and it's off of the North Aegean Sea. And again, it's in the same province as Smyrna. Now, as far as Pergamum, when did it start showing up in the history books? Well, the first mention, at least in, from a historian, was in 400 B.C., and it was by an ancient Greek historian, uh, Xenophon. I think I'm saying that right. It's Xenophon. And there was a Greek historian, and this, how many of us have heard of Socrates? You know, we've heard of that name. Well, he existed around 400 BC, and so did Xenophon. And Xenophon was a Greek historian, and he wrote concerning Pergamum. That's where Pergamum is now on the map, as far as history goes. And, you know, Xenophon, he served under Cyrus the Younger, who was a Persian prince at that time. Also, as you look at history, and we've all heard of Alexander the Great, right? So after, you know, Greece conquered the Persians and Alexander began his conquest and became the superpower of the world, after Alexander the Great died, then the land that he conquered, which is pretty much, the eastern part of the world, you know, from Rome to, you know, where we know is Greece and Turkey today, you know, the whole Middle East, that kind of section was under, um, it got parceled out to four generals after Alexander the Great died. But what happened was eventually um, Pergamum became a kingdom under what was known as the Attalid dynasty. So now not only was Pergamum on the map from a historical standpoint from Xenophon in 400 BC, but sometime after the death of Alexander the Great, now the history tells us of this Adalid kingdom. There's this kingdom of Pergamum, and it's also called the Adalid dynasty. Now, when that Adalid dynasty came to an end, it was under Um, The last king there was Attalus III, and he died around 133 B.C. So when this Attalid dynasty came to an end, and that last king from Pergamum was Attalus III, when he died, Rome took power of this area. And when Rome, there was no no longer an Attalid dynasty, it's now under Rome, then Rome made Pergamum the capital of what's known then as Asia. So initially, if, when Rome had a capital, back then it was Pergamum. Okay? And at that time, history tells us, it's, it, it, by that time it was a thriving city, and it had about a population of over 100,000. Uh, something to note, when, by the time we're reading it in the book of Revelation, now this letter to Pergamum, Pergamum was no longer the capital city. Ephesus was. But nonetheless, Pergamum was still a significant city at the time of the penning of Revelation because from a strategical standpoint, because it's high up, it was a good kind of fortress, right? It's hard to get you know, taken over, um, penetrated when you're that high up the uh, Acropolis. So that was one of many benefits that continued to make Pergamum an important city under rome uh, a side note here so josephus when he talks about pergamum there was he couldn't find any evidence that there was a synagogue in pergamum so when we learn in our letter to uh, the church in smyrna remember he says uh, those who say they are jews but are not but are a synagogue of satan well we know at least in smyrna there was a synagogue But in Pergamum, we can't say that. At least there's no historical evidence, at least that I've come across, that would support that. I thought that was just an interesting thought. But there were definitely some other things. There's no synagogues there, but there was other things in Pergamum, as we will see. Let's continue to look at Pergamum in history. Now, Pergamum, it was entrenched in Greek, here's a big word, Hellenistic culture. Thus, it had one of the largest altars in the ancient world. In fact, in the existence of Pergamum, there were many temples and shrines that were erected and dedicated to Olympian gods and goddesses. And here are some familiar names. So, Pergamum had temples and shrines, and here are some notable figures Zeus, Dionysus, Asclepius. I'm saying that right. Asclepius. Athena. Oh, the kings of Pergamum under the Attalid dynasty, they had shrines and temples for them. Oh, how about this? Roman emperors. Uh, A couple, in particular, Claudius and Trajan. So Pergamum, in its history, going back from 400 B.C., even to the writing of this letter, and even beyond it, there was a lot of temples and shrines to these different deities. Hopefully you're starting to see, why is this the place where Satan dwells? And we will look at that a little more closely. And more concerning Pergamum. So when we learned in Ephesus, remember Ephesus had this theater. Well, Pergamum also had this theater and there's a picture of it there and it's on the side of the apocalypse. I mean, man, I was just thinking about sitting there and having a cup of coffee and looking at the view. It's like, wow. Yeah. And it's been said that this stadium can seat about 10 to 15,000 people. So kind of like a warrior game. And just as Smyrna was known for the commodity of myrrh, if you want to know, hey, what was Pergamum known for? If Smyrna was known for myrrh as, as, as a, a, a main exporter and importer, they were known for a major producer of parchments. You know what they actually wrote, the, on, like wrote the scripture on parchments? Well, the main producer or the main importer-exporter is Pergamum. In fact, in Latin, parchment is derived from that city's name. Parchment is Pergamum, in Latin, and it was at one time in its history. It had, well, you know, reported of over two hundred thousand manuscripts of ancient antiquity history. So it was a very prominent place in history, as far as the records go. And just as we learn about Ephesus, it was considered the great city of the goddess Artemis. So, you know, Ephesus, the great city of the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the key figure in Ephesus. But in Pergamum, you know who was considered the great in that city? Well, there was gods and goddesses. But you know who the two key figures? Zeus and Athena. And by the way, it's Athena Nike. And it means the goddess of victory. So like I have Nikes right now. It means victory. And it's influenced by the Greek goddess of Athena. So back then, let's say you're a Roman emperor. You're about to go to war. I need victory over this people. I'm going to go to the goddess of victory, Athena. That's what they did. There was different gods that specialized in different things. And in the case of Athena, that's why she's called the goddess of victory. Another thing to note, see, there's a lot about Pergamum. One thing it was also known for, it was an ancient location of healing. They had the Asclepion at Pergamum. And it was basically the hospital of the ancient world. You know, we we have hospitals here. It wasn't like that. Back then, if you wanted a place of healing, you wanted to go to a doctor or physician, you would go and if you don't live there, you would journey in pilgrimage to the Asclepion at Pergamum. So it was their hospital at that time. And as far as the Asclepion, okay, here we are, you know, first century B.C., Well, the Asclepion goes as far back as the 4th century B.C., and it started after the god of medicine and healing. So Asclepion, in Greek Hellenistic belief, is the god of medicine and healing. So just as, like I mentioned in that example, Athena was the goddess of victory. Well, if you want to go to the god of healing and you want to go to the god of medicine, you'd go to the god Asclepion. That's why it's called the Asclepion. Well, Pergamum had the Asclepion. And here, and what's pretty neat about, you know, as we're, we're starting to learn about history, a lot of these, you know, cities that were studying, you know, the letters to these churches, they're being excavated as we speak. There was a lot of artifacts, buildings, temples that are being restored. So you can kind of get an idea of how it was back then. Well, here in this, what's depicted here, the god of Asclepion, there was a symbol that's on this stone right here. And if you were to look at that stone, you can't really see it here too closely because it's a little far. But what was engraved on it was a rod wrapped with two snakes. So snakes and rods. So the symbol of the god of the Asclepion was a symbol of a rod wrapped with snakes. And here's what's interesting. Some of us might be familiar with this, but if you were to kind of look at symbols in modern medicine today, these are some examples, but you'll oftentimes see some sort of variation of a rod and a snake. Well, if you want to know how did that start, well, you got to go way back to a person by the name of Hippocrates and this Hellenistic thought or that influenced Hellenistic thought ultimately gave birth to this god of Asclepion. So as far as medicine and healing going far back even to the 400 BC, throughout its time, even in modern medicine today, if you want to have a symbol of medicine and healing, it's often associated with a snake and a rod. And that's influenced by the Greek Hellenistic culture and also the god of Asclepion, That was very prevalent in Pergamum at the time of this writing. So that's another way to say, if you were to look at ancient times, what was associated with healing? Snakes. Snakes was associated with healing. Here, you know what could have influenced that? What was interesting, now when when Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night and he started to ask him questions, And Jesus started to tell him about the necessity of the new birth. And when Jesus started to explain to him the gospel in the way that Nicodemus needed to hear it, do you remember before the great, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son? Before he got to that statement in John 3.16, he referred to the bronze serpent account. So what happened was when God through Moses, was leading the people of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. They haven't gotten there yet, but while they were in the wilderness, they grumbled against God and against Moses. They're like, oh, have you brought us out here to die? Oh, and they longed to go back to Egypt. You know what God did? He sent snakes, and they were venomous because they bit them, and many of them died. And then when they realized that they angered God, then they pleaded to Moses, Moses, you know, we've sinned, you know, please have God relent. And then God said, Moses, go get yourself or make a bronze, a bronze serpent figure. And he goes, and have the people of Israel, when they look at that and believe, even though they get bit, they won't die. So if you were to ask me what influenced kind of ancient times associating healing with snakes, it's possibly from that Moses account. But it's just perverted. Because, and in Christ used that to say, just as the people of Israel back then who sinned, when they looked to the serpent, even though they bit, they lived, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So even you, Nicodemus, they're going to kill me, but if you look on me and believe, you will too be saved and born again. Pretty remarkable stuff. But that, like, morphed pretty much over time, to this god of Asclepion. And that started again at least as far back as 400 B.C. But it was very prevalent at the time of Pergamum. So let's kind of summarize that point. So the healing temple in Pergamum, it was dedicated and it was named after the god of Asclepion. So if you were to go to that ancient town in Pergamum at that time and you wanted healing, you, you were going to a temple or a place that was dedicated to and named after this god of Asclepion. And this healing temple was their hospital and it was entrenched with idolatry, witchcraft, and sorcery. They, were, they had pagan priests and physicians. And those hoping for healing, and including the, the Roman emperors, as I mentioned in the Athena example, if they wanted victory, they'd go to Athena. But if they had some sort of ailment they would go to the god of Asclepion. And they would undergo a ritual cleansing. They would offer sacrifices to Asclepion. They would even drink a potion for medicine. And it would induce them into a sleeper trance. And oftentimes they would be put into like a dark area, a dark room, maybe a dungeon, full of snakes to crawl over them. And their hope is that maybe Asclepius will appear in their dream and they can commune with them and get the answers and the healing that they're looking for. This is what's going on in Pergamum by the time this letter was delivered to them. This was one of many things. So all this is to say Pergamum had a lot of activity going on and you can go all the way back as far as Socrates around 400 B.C. and it continued to to this point in the letter and even after Revelation and it was a place heavenly influenced by Greek mythology, ideologies, and idol worship. They had a lot going on. And we will talk a little bit more about some of these temples as we kind of go on. But with that, you know, hopefully we have at least, there was a lot here, and I really tried to dub this down because I want us to give us enough where we have an idea of kind of what's going on. But if you can just imagine that last statement, it was influenced by Greek mythology, ideologies, and idol worship. And at the time, there was temples and shrines erected to these different deities for different Reasons, then you will understand, okay, what was the, the possible struggle by the believers in Pergamum? What were they faced with, and what did Jesus find? And then we will see how that will be instructive to them and also to us. Amen? So let's go ahead and now hear what our Lord had to say. We'll pick it up in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So let's take this from the top and now let's walk through. What did Jesus, remember he was standing among the lampstands and one of those lampstands represented Pergamum, the one who has eyes as a flame of fire, who's, who's, who's out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and, and in his hand he had a star, he had, a, he had seven stars and we know that those seven stars were representative of the seven angels over the seven churches. But what did Jesus after walking among them what did he see and what was his assessment so let's pick it up in verse 12 again and to the angel of the church in pergamum right the one who has a, sh- a sharp two-edged sword says this i'm going to belabor the point it says to the angel to the agalos." a lot of commentators say oh it's the pastor of that church it was the bishop of that church i'm going to argue it's not I'm going to argue because Jesus had seven stars in his hand that represented the seven angels who are over the seven churches. Then, why all of a sudden he becomes a pastor? No, it was to an angel who was assigned over the church in Pergamum. And this is what he said The one speaking is the one who has a sharp two edged sword, says this. Now, when we, when the last time when John described the risen Lord. He said a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. In chapter 2, verse 23, it didn't come out of his mouth. It says he possesses it. He has it. And we learned what does this sharp two-edged sword mean using scripture? This was the short of it. We went through scripture and we looked at it. Here's when, when The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. This is the interpretation. Jesus is ready to execute judgment and uh, vengeance against those who rebel against Him. So when Jesus is described as one holding a sharp two-edged sword, that's not good. That's not good. He's ready to execute vengeance and judgment to those who rebel. Think about it. So if Jesus was before you, And you're rebelling, he will slay you with it, is this imagery? You're like, wait, that's not the Jesus I've been taught. Well, the one with the sharp two-edged sword says this: He's not holding it for decoration, he's not posing for a selfie. It's a very, very serious posture. But this is what he had to say: I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, although this letter was first addressed to the angel over that church, now when we get to verse 13, he goes, I know where you dwell. He's talking to the believers here where Satan's throne is. And you'll see this is a consistent theme throughout the letters. Jesus acknowledges something about that church. In Ephesus, I know your your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. In the, the letter to Smyrna, he goes i know your your tribulation and your poverty and here he tells them i know where you dwell i'm aware of this i know where you live we talked a little bit about where they live he goes i know where satan's throne is what's, what does that mean so we're going to look at what's satan's throne what and then he mentions a man by the name of antipas well we talked about polycarp last time but polycarp wasn't even in the bible at least in scripture yeah it was written by the church fathers that followed, but not, he didn't make it to scripture, but um, Antipas did. So who's Antipas? We'll look at that. And then lastly, when he says where Satan dwells, which is the title of this message. Now I want to talk about Satan's throne. Jesus says Satan has a throne. And we've learned this in past studies. I've looked through all the scriptures that had thrown us, or throne, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Here's what we learned There's only one throne in heaven. There's only one. There's not two thrones. There's not a a throne for the Father and the Son in heaven. There's only one. One throne. And that belongs to God the Father. We learn that. And I remember as we were learning this, I felt like I was doing some sort of blasphemy because we're so so taught that, no, the Father and Jesus are equal. They're 100% God. They're equally God. There's no one greater than the other. They're one. That's not what... The scripture is, is, is revealing to us. No, there's one throne in heaven and it belongs to God the Father. Now, Jesus has authority to sit on his Father's throne and he even said that in his own lips. He says, I will give him, right, who overcomes the right to sit on my, on my throne as I have the right to sit on my Father's throne. You know, it's interesting. You're giving the throne to Jesus but yet he's acknowledging it's his Father's. But we learn there's only one throne in heaven, God the Father. And we also learn that when it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, that doesn't mean he sat down on the throne. It means that he was really sitting or he's presiding in this role as God's king and high priest. He was in a position of favor and authority. So God pretty much created this role, if you will. He goes, you know what? I'm going to have my king and my high priest for my people. He goes, son, that's you. Have you ever heard ball and told at work when you're told to do something kind of like that? The father established these offices as God's king and high priest. You can even say God's messiah and high priest. But we've also learned that it was the father who desired to give his son his very own throne. Remember, there's only one throne in heaven, but he goes, you know what? Son, my one and only son, my beloved son, I want to give you your own throne. And that's where we get into the whole Davidic kingdom and the throne that was promised to the son of David. The father wants to give his son a throne of his own, not in heaven, on earth. So it should be no surprise then. If God has a throne, do you think Satan will want one too? Or should it surprise us that whatever God does, Satan tries to usurp or match him? They're kind of in competition with each other. He goes, oh, okay, okay. You have a throne in heaven? You're going to give your son a throne? You know what? I want one for myself. Well, he has one, according to Jesus. So the truth in verse 12 is he has a throne and out of all places in Pergamum. In Pergamum. So my curiosity is what is that throne? What is it? What was it? So first, to even try to tackle that question, I want us to look at just the grammar. Jesus said, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne, and depending on your translation, it says is. Now, if you're looking at the NAS, is, is not italicized. So when you're reading your English translation, if you see any words in italicized, that was inserted there so that it can, you can read it. But it wasn't there. But because there's a difference between the languages, sometimes you have to bridge the gap. So that italicized is inserted there by the translators okay that wasn't necess- that's not scripture if you're reading from the nes when it says where satan's throne is 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 not italicized so you might think it was there in the text but if you were to look at the king james and the new king james you will see that it was italicized which tells us that it wasn't there in the original it was added there so we can read it in english So if if we were to read it just word for word and no insertion, Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne. It just kind of stops. Like, Well, Satan's throne what? Where Satan's throne is. And that's why the interpreters or the translators insert it is. Now that being said, although is is not in the original, Satan's throne is in the definite article. Now what that means is, it's to a specific noun, or in this case, person. So, this throne that Jesus mentioned here belongs to Satan. So Satan has a throne. It's a definite article. Satan. It's Satan's throne. So here's what it means in context. When he goes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So the believers, remember, when they get this letter, Jesus is acknowledging the present reality that Satan's throne is where Pergamum is. And this is where I'm like, okay, well, what is that? what's the throne? Most commentaries will argue, well, Satan's throne was the temple of Zeus, because, and it makes sense, because Zeus, in Greek mythology, you know, among the Olympian gods, there was this plethora of gods, but you know who was the god of gods? It was Zeus. You know what else his titles were called? He was the lord of lords, and he was the king of kings. Sound familiar? So, but a lot, so a lot of commentators would say, okay, well, pergamum had a temple to zeus and zeus had these titles jesus is talking about the temple of zeus well first before we we go there here's kind of i found this model of a picture and this is you know trying to be representative of what it was like in pergamum on that uh, acropolis so if you kind of look at this diagram of a model You'll see, at least at the very top here where the theater was, you see on the bottom left there, there was a temple of Dionysus. He was the god of revelry. So if you wanted to get drunk and, and do orgies and stuff like that, you would go to the temple of Dionysus. It would be the equivalent of a strip club today or you know, going to a place where there's hookers. Well, they had a temple for that, and it was part of the worship. That's the temple of Dionysus. It's right there. But if you kind of go up, let's go, let's go counterclockwise. There was a temple to Trajan. So if you wanted to pay tribute, remember, they deified the Caesars. And Pergamum deified, or at least that land, deified and, and dedicated this temple to Trajan. Now, this happened after this time. But as you can see, you know, if it was kind of set there, that's where the temple would have been on the Acropolis. There, Then you get to the library, and there's a temple right there of the sacred square and also, or also the temple of Athena, Nike, remember the goddess of victory. But there, finally, when you get to the right there, there was a temple of Zeus the west, here to the right of the theater in this diagram. But I just showed us to say, look, there is all these various temples and even one to the, the Roman emperor. The, the, here's some different gods and you know, goddesses. But there was also other temples for other deities or even other kings and other things. Now, here's where I struggle. This is where I struggle when commentaries say, oh, Satan's throne was the temple of Zeus. This is, why I, this is where I struggle. For starters, the temple of Zeus didn't have a throne. It had an altar that you would offer up to Zeus. And, but some will say, oh, okay, there's no throne. But if you look at it, it is, if you kind of go back to the picture here, uh, it's kind of shaped like a throne. Okay, so, that, 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 so that's your hermeneutics. Remember, I, I mentioned this earlier. When I look to Scripture, throne means throne one hundred percent of the time, one hundred percent. So I struggle and say, like, "Okay, well." Then I, I looked to the history. I looked at the different temples. I'm like, "Okay, which one had a throne? Did the temple to Trajan have a throne? No. These other temples to Dionysus, Athena, anyone, anywhere? No. What is Jesus talking about? That's what I'm, So I'm just, I'm just being upfront here." I hit a wall because remember and this is why I set our rules of engagement from the beginning we're going to follow this the whole way we can't add or take away from scripture we can't take scripture out of context we shall interpret scripture with a literal fulfillment you can't impose your personal bias you can't pass down man's opinion oh this commentary said this so I'm going to continue to pass this down you can't over spiritualize it okay it doesn't really mean a physical throne it's He's ruling in this sphere where there is this spiritual throne in the heavenlies. I go, really? There's only one throne that I saw in looking at all of Scripture, and that was the Father's throne in heaven. And, and lastly, one of our rules in engagement, you shall not present speculation as truth. So for much of the teaching out there, it says, well, Satan's throne is one the temple of Zeus or you know, the, the, the Roman throne. I'm like, well, was the Roman throne in Pergamum? If it was, then okay, I'll I'll think about it. But we're talking about Pergamum here. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is in the definite article. He didn't say, I didn't know. Jesus didn't say, I know where you dwell and where Satan's altar or altars is or are. And and I'm going to belabor this point. So if you read any teaching that says, well, altar and throne, you know, it's fine. Well, there was and the good thing is in scripture. Fear say okay. When was altar and throne used at least in the same verse? There's only one, and we're going to go to that, and it's in the book of Revelation. Let's look at this, in Revelation chapter eight verse three, and this is after the breaking of the seventh seal. Another angel came and stood at the altar. Okay, here's an altar. In the Greek, it's Thusia sterion holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, the, again, Thusiasterion, which was before the throne. So this was the only time in Scripture where both altar and throne were used in the same verse, and what's clear in this verse alone is the altar is not the throne. The altar was before the throne. They're two different things. So this is where I struggle. Okay. Satan has a throne. What is it? Where is it? Well, it? well, it's Pergamum, at least here. But what is that? Since none of the temples, as I mentioned in Pergamum, to my knowledge, had an actual throne, I can't say that Jesus was referring to any of those temples, whether it be Zeus or any other temples or shrines. And I do want to acknowledge this. There was a lot of demon worship. It was prevalent Satan was definitely there present but none of them had a throne just altars and you see there what was what is Satan's throne and I got humbled like I don't know I'm stumped because Satan has a throne and I, I don't believe he's referring in a spiritual sense of these various temples and shrines including Zeus but here's where I'll leave it because I don't want to you know, when he says, I know where Satan's throne, maybe that's prophecy. Perhaps as we study, we will know what Satan's throne was being talked about here, but at least I, where I'm at now, again, I'm stumped. And, I, and I'll say this, if, if there was a throne in any of the temples in Pergamum, or if some, some way, somehow, when Caesar was in power, he had a throne, an actual throne, and it was in Pergamum, I'll, I'm, I'm all ears. But if there's no throne, just altars and all this other stuff, i would be like, well, that's not what Jesus was referring to. Because throne in Scripture means throne 100% of the time. But I'm going to leave that there for now. So with that, let's go on to see what Jesus says in the next verse. In verse 13, he mentions an early hero of the faith, a man by the name of Antipas. Remember, he says again, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So uh, at least at this part of the evaluation, Jesus was commending them for not disowning faith in him and his name, and that's anoma authority, even in the days of Antipas. So well, well, who's Antipas? Well, one thing we know just by this statement alone, whoever Antipas was. He must have lived and been killed prior to this letter. So by the time we're at 95 or 96 AD, Antipas already, you know, he already lived and died by this point. Because by this time, Jesus says, he was killed in the past tense, not he will be killed in the future. So Antipas died and you know, lived and died sometime before 95 or 96 AD just by looking at this statement. Here's where it got a little tricky. So I'm like, okay. What does church history or tradition tells us? And the best I can find was in these Orthodox churches. They had some sort of Eastern Greek Orthodox, some sort of Orthodox church that has some sort of record of the early first century. And there was at least a, a variety of these Orthodox churches that for the most part said a lot of the same thing. So this is what church tradition tells us. Who was Antipas? antipas was a disciple of john the apostle so you know how polycarp was a disciple by john well guess what church tradition tells us antipas was too man could you imagine being discipled by john he's grooming you for death literally he's like oh he's a like, great you, you love christ you accept the gospel you you want to give your life and preaching the gospel sweet i'll take you under my wing i'm gonna get you ready for slaughter wow that was the, the Apostle John. That's what he did. That's what happened, at least in these examples of Polycarp and now Antipas. He was a disciple of John. Church tradition also tells us, well, Antipas, he was a bishop in Pergamum, hence why Jesus mentioned Pergamum, you know, Antipas to the believers in Pergamum. And though even though he was killed, he was a bishop that they didn't shrink back. And Antipas preached Christ. remember all those idol worship? He preached against it. Are you going to the temple of Dionysus? You're you're paying homage to Trajan? Oh, you're going to go to Nike, Athena? Oh, you want to go to the temple Zeus? Oh, you want to go to the god of Asclepion? He goes, repent, repent from your evil deeds. Turn to the living God. What do you think he did? Do you think he made friends? Pretty much caused an uproar. Didn't Paul experience the same thing? He's going to a lot of similar situations. And we saw what happened in Ephesus. He's saying, well, the the great god, um, the great goddess Artemis, she's not a god at all. And the silversmiths were getting upset because now a lot of people are no longer buying their idols. Well, Antipas, being discipled by John the Apostle, did what the apostles did. And church tradition also tells us that he got in, you know, the pagan priests, they hotly contested him, and they're telling him that the gospel is not the gospel that there's more one way to heaven, there's more one way to worship. Hey, you know, we live in a in a, in a culture, we live in a time where like see all these deities and all these shrines. You know, we all have freedom of religion here. Don't disrupt us, okay? Because now you're you're preaching this Christ and this exclusivity and there is this only one way to heaven and there's only one one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God overall who is overall through all and in all. And then lastly, Church tradition tells us that Antipas, he was eventually apprehended, and you know what? They burned him to death in one of the pagan temples, probably as an offering to one of the pagan deities, purportedly on a bull shaped altar. Oh, and by the way, bull shaped altar, when you get to Baal worship, bull, Baal, probably, presumably, along those lines. Well, Antipas died and was burned. So it was likely, when you take all this, who was Antipas? Well, he, a disciple of John, well, Antipas, along with Peter and Paul, were killed during the persecution of the church under the reign of Nero. And we talked a lot about the reign or the persecution of Nero. Remember the great fire that burned about three quarters of the city? And then the people blamed Nero, and Nero was feeling the heat, and he blamed the Christians. And now the Christians were responsible for this fire and then there was all these other allegations against christianity that they were you know cannibals because they drink the lord's blood and eat his body and things like that so antipas along with peter and paul likely were all killed under that great intense persecution so jesus commended them for not disowning him even in the days of antipas his witness his faithful one, and was killed for believing and preaching the gospel in a perverse and adulterous generation. And that kind of leads us to a universal truth. Okay, Jesus was commending the believers in Pergamum for not you know, disowning Christ, even though you can say the you know, Antipas, their very own bishop, was burned to death. They still at least held on and didn't deny him. Here's kind of a universal truth just by this, looking at this. Jesus is fully aware and he commends all who have died for believing and preaching the gospel. I want to say that again. For all who were martyred for being a witness for Christ, even from that time, from the days of Antipas forward, even till now, if anyone dies for believing and preaching the gospel in a perverse and adulterous generation, Jesus will commend you and he will receive you in favor and he will reward you for your faithfulness. Antipas. Yeah, it seems tragic. Polycarp that we learn seemed tragic. He, he'll say, you're my faithful one. You are a witness for me. I commend you and I receive you with favor. From our Lord's lips. That, that applies from then on. Now let's look at the la- la- last part of this phrase, where Satan dwells. Okay. Dwells is katoi kiyo and it means to live or settle so pergamum was not only where satan's throne is but where satan dwells lives and settled so this provoked a thought although satan is an angel and he's a spirit being in the heavenlies we can't necessarily see him unless he manifests himself he lives on earth was he not on the garden Does he not prowl around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour? And here Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, where he lives, where he settled, not visiting. You don't dwell. That's not the word dwell for dwell. Dwell is, right now we're dwelling wherever we live. You live in Lincoln, you live in Rockland, you're settled here, you're dwelling here. Well, here's the truth. At least at the penning of this letter, you know where Satan put up shop? He says, oh, you know what? This place on earth right here, I, I, I like it. Of course, he needed permission by God, of course. But God gave it to him. At the time of the writing of this letter, Satan lived in Pergamum. Now, and I've mentioned this in other examples. You think Satan lived in other parts of the world since then? I think I would say there's a pretty darn good chance he did. I don't think he's still there right now because it's rubble. Do you think maybe he lived in Vegas for a little bit? Kind of, you know, said, "You know what? <sighs> you know, the humidity here in the Middle East is kind of getting to me a little bit. I'll get this desert heat over here." Says, so like, "Yeah, I'm going to take this area. Let me, uh, you know, build my legacy and then I'll give it to another angel to run it." <laughs> DC like, oh, well, wow, the, the United States. I mean, you've been a superpower for some time. You know what? Let, let, let me change things up a bit. Let me settle in D.C. for a little bit and kind of stir the pot. Satan is living somewhere right now. Where? <laughs> you know, maybe he's on a shorter lease, visiting different places. I don't know. But at least when Jesus said these words, Satan's throne and his dwelling place was in Pergamum. So in 95-96 A.D., Satan's address was somewhere in Pergamum. Now, can Satan's throne be synonymous with where Satan dwells? Are they like the same thing? Well, they are connected, but dwells doesn't mean throne, and throne doesn't mean <laughs> dwells. But yet, they are connected. Well, let me say this. Okay, the throne is in heaven, but the throne... Is the throne which is in heaven and heavens where God lives, so they're connected. Throne in heaven, well on earth, at least here there was a throne, and there is Pergamum. At least at the time here, that's where Satan was living, so they were connected. But I want to mention this one other time: when Satan's throne means Satan's throne, and throne means throne one hundred percent of the time. Here's here's a possibility. Because I'm trying to say, like, what is Satan's throne at that time when Jesus wrote this? I, I, I was stumped. Well, here's a possibility. The throne of David, is it here now? No. Will it come? Oh, absolutely. And where will it be set? In Jerusalem. So is it possible that when Jesus, says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne, as far as can that be prophecy? Is he talking about the throne ultimately that will be Antichrist himself when he sits in power and given the authority from all the nations? This man of perdition, the Antichrist? Could this Satan's throne, just like it's it's not necessarily here yet, but it's coming, could that be it? At least for me, that's where I'm like, that's, you know, making more and more sense. So all that is to say, when Jesus says, I know where you are, where Satan dwells, or where Satan's throne and where Satan dwells, that there are some undertones of prophecy that is speaking about Satan will have a throne on earth, just like Jesus will have a throne on earth, but Satan will have it first for a time. And then ultimately, Jesus will destroy him and the false prophet by the word of his mouth and he will
0: establish his kingdom. Thank you for listening today to Truth Matters Church. Join us next time for part two of this deep dive look at the letter to the church in Pergamum. And if you've missed any part of our study thus far, you can find all of them at our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply search for us on Sermon Audio. And you can even listen on your Amazon Alexa device by asking it to play the Truth Matters Church podcast. Contending for the faith one verse at a time, this is Truth Matters Church.